Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Karthnik Gopalikrishnan, the Director of Licensing and New Ventures at the Bill L. Harbert Institute for Innovation and Entrepreneurship at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Karthik has more than 15 years of experience in asset and technology evaluation across broad scientific disciplines, marketing and negotiating agreements and contracts, business plan assessment, startup formation, and fundraising. Prior to UAB, Karthik worked at the Duke University Office of Licensing and Ventures and as a strategic consultant with a biotechnology startup in the oncology space, leading their strategic planning and business development efforts. Karthik earned a Master of Science in Biotechnology from the MS University of Baroda and a PhD in Biochemistry from the Tata Institute of Fundamental Research in Mumbai, India. Karthik completed a postdoctoral fellowship at the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences in Research Triangle Park, North Carolina. And with that very impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Karthik. Oh, thank you very much, Lisa, for having me on your podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thanks again for taking part in the podcast. And Karthik, I generally like to start the podcast off by asking my guests about their journey to tech transfer. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up in Birmingham and at UAB? Absolutely. So I started off my career as a scientist, as you probably noted in your introduction, at the Tata Institute of Fundamental Research in uh, Bombay, India. And then I came to the U.S. in 99 for a postdoc at the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences. Uh, somewhere in the middle of my postdoc, I kind of felt that science was a little isolating, at least for me. And while I was exploring different career options, I learned about technology transfer at an alternative career fair at the National Institutes of Health. It seemed like an option where my science skills set could be of use on a continual basis, while I would also learn a whole new range of skills kind of discussed these options with my postdoc mentor, who was very, very supportive. In fact, a huge shout out to him. Uh, he helped my career transition in a couple of different ways. Uh, in the first part, he actually funded my taking uh, the basic licensing course at Autumn. And uh, this helped me kind of talk the talk when I was going to be talking to a potential future employer that is actually serious in wanting to do this. And then I finished that course, but of course, that's just a course. And then I did my own networking, but again, it was my mentor's connection. And he put me in touch with a colleague at Duke uh, who had worked previously with the tech transfer office. I connected with this person and eventually landed my first position there uh, at the MTA office at Duke before moving on to the licensing side a year and a half later. So I guess I joined Duke in 2004, uh, joined the licensing side in 2005, and then I stayed on for about 14 more years. So that is the story of my entry into tech transfer. As regards how I got here uh, to UAB and uh, Birmingham, uh, that partly was personal, 
But what tipped the scale towards UAB amongst other opportunities I was considering was that during my interview process, I met with members of the local community. Now, they are really, really engaged, and they want to see UAB and Birmingham as a city succeed. I remember them saying that people who matter in the city are easily accessible, and I'll be able to have an impact on the city and actually see it in my lifetime. Well, we'll see how that goes, but (laughs) I've been here for about a year and a half, and I do see that the community who really wants to work with UAB and create partnerships that will foster economic development and bring about change, they are very, very easily accessible. So that actually, I've seen that even in my short time here. So now you have the whole story, what brought me here to Birmingham. Now, for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with the Bill L. Harpert Institute for Innovation and Entrepreneurship, can you tell us a little bit about it and what it strives to accomplish? Of course. So formally and legally, the entity that I work in is called the UABRF or the UAB Research Foundation. Now, this is an independent affiliate of the university. The name changed first changed from UABRF to IIE or the Institute of Innovation Entrepreneurship. And that is a brainchild of my boss, Kathy Nugent, who is the executive director of the office as well as an associate vice president of innovation at UAB. So let me take a step back. So many schools have two independent entities. Uh, The first one catering towards undergraduate innovation entrepreneurship and the second one catering to faculty innovation entrepreneurship. So the IIE was envisaged as a one-stop shop, catering to both undergrad and faculty efforts in these areas. I think this is very powerful because it helps us synergize the opportunities, it helps streamline our efforts. It also helps us to enable, it also kind of enables us to interact with the community in a unified way. And again, talking about community, one of the pillars of the community, Billy Harbert, provided partial funding for the construction of the building and for the naming rights to the institution. And he named it in the honor of his father, Bill L. Harbert, who was the CEO of an international construction company. So the evolution and the transition was from UABRF to the IIE to HIIE, or Harbert Institute of Innovation Entrepreneurship. And as I keep mentioning in all of my seminars, you can call us what way you want. You can call us UABRF, you can call us IIE, HIIE. We will respond. And the important thing is just to call us. Well, speaking of your office, can you tell us a little bit about your office and how it's structured? So when I joined the team in 2019, in August of 2019, we had two licensing associates, a patent manager who who was also doing compliance management, which is a big issue in universities nowadays. And there's a patent docket person who was also helping with distributions, a finance budget person and a communications person. So we were actually going to hire an additional licensing associate when COVID struck, delaying our hire uh, for a long time. And we only went from two to three uh, sometime in September. But having said that, we are hoping to add to that in a month or so to make it four. But for the longest year, uh, longest time, uh, for about a year or so, we only had two licensing associates and me. So significantly short-staffed and new, and we had to start working remotely with COVID. So someone said, never let a good crisis go to waste. And what we did was use this opportunity to streamline our processes, redo a lot of our templates, 
And everyone really stepped up to the plate to kind of take on additional responsibilities. So at some level, I guess we are kind of a matrix organization in that we at least understand what others in our office do. And I think that's a good thing. So for example, one of our staff whose core responsibility was not really licensing, uh, stepped up to the plate and took on our materials licensing, the mice, antibodies, et cetera, which contributes about 20% or so to our bottom line. So, so that's an important thing. And, and lastly, we're also close to hiring a marketing person who will complete the invention management cycle by ensuring that we can be proactive in reaching the appropriate audience, target audience for our inventions. So it's kind of a remarkable growth in our office. And uh, shout out to the importance given to our office and our functionality within the university as seen from the fact that our office reports directly to the president, which is actually not a very common occurrence. And what that ensures is that we have the visibility and the resources that we need to carry out our tasks. Now, let's talk about numbers a little bit. Um, Karthi, can you tell us a little bit about the number of invention disclosures your office received in the last year, as well as the number of licenses executed, licensing revenue, things like that? I can. And let me, I guess, approach this question in, 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 in a way that I'll provide some numbers first, maybe off the top, and then maybe give you some color and my perspectives. So we do about 40 licenses a year. And on average, we bring in between five and $7 million a year. Uh, since I joined, uh, we have been very focused on increasing engagement with our faculty. And we've increased the number of seminars that we, that, that, that we give. We, we have a lot of towns, town hall style events. And we also had a lot of one-on-one -on -one events. And I think we have engaged over a thousand faculty in the first year of uh, the operations here since I joined. From a startup perspective, we had two faculty and four student startups form. And, and I think this year we are on track to easily double or triple the number of faculty startups as seen from our pipeline. And, and this is also during the COVID timeframe. So that's actually pretty impressive. And talking about startups, our startups have brought in reasonable amount of money uh, through SBIR, STTR mechanisms. I think about $700,000 was awarded to our faculty startups. And obviously, if there are more startups, uh, which, which we do envisage, you can see that that number is going to have a slight uptick too. And we get about 90 invention disclosures a year. So now for the commentary, now that we have the numbers, for the enterprise that is as productive as UAB from a grants perspective, uh, we bring in about $600 million in research funding. Wow. We really should be twice that number in terms of invention disclosures. Now, this is just from benchmarking. And we do have a plan to get to that number, which is about between 150 and 200 in about three to five years from now. I believe that since we have uh, increased our staff, uh, which in part, perhaps was rate limiting, uh, we can grow about 10% year on year uh, to get to that numbers in about three to five years. Well, that's great. Um, those are some impressive goals. How do you plan on getting to those numbers, Karthik? So I think it's primarily one of the relationships. So as I mentioned, we have begun the process of engaging and monitoring that engagement with our faculty in, in various forums that I mentioned. And soon after I joined, uh, we started what's called a fellows program at UAB. This is leveraging our talented graduate and student pool 
to be able to write up reports on our inventions that approaches the science embedded in the inventions from the perspective of it becoming ready for marketing and and to see whether it has likely any commercial relevance. So we made available to these fellows uh, the resources that they need in terms of access to some databases. Of course, they were trained by us and, and trained by us to kind of think about what to look for and how to approach uh, this particular perspective. The program serves two purposes. On the one hand, it provides an avenue for our graduate students to explore alternative career paths and get a flavor and taste of the technology transfer world with some hands-on experience. On the other hand, it also helps our licensing staff and faculty get a sense of the potential commercial opportunities and challenges and helps identify the path to navigate it. So getting back to the relationship concept, it, it kind of furthers the engagement with the faculty, makes them aware of our processes, the rationale for our decision. So it's not like a black box. You submit invention disclosure, goes in, don't know why you patent something or not. Uh, this, this kind of furthers the engagement there. And the hope is that this transparency will hopefully foster goodwill and for the word to spread to their colleagues. And hopefully that will lead to an increase in the number of disclosures that we see. And then there's also the obvious that needs to be acknowledged. We were short-staffed, and the two people were serving about nine schools within UAB and their various departments. Wow. So as I mentioned before, not that we have increased our staff and hoping to add more, that's not going to be rate limiting and allows us to be very proactive about engagement and education, both of which ought to increase our disclosure count. Now, Karthik, I want to talk a little bit about your office being short-staffed. Um, did you guys have to do anything unique? Did you deploy or adopt any creative measures or strategies to try and advance your translational goals during that time? Oh, thanks for asking that question, Lisa. Uh, I certainly wanted to talk about that. So one of the programs that we launched leverages our co-location with the business school and specifically a course taught in the MBA program. So we were fortunate to find an ally, a willing ally, uh, in a professor teaching a business planning course. So we approached him with the idea that we would seed his class with real world inventions from our end, with the hope that the students taking the class would kind of coalesce around one or few of these ideas. And we would have different sets of eyes looking at this invention from different perspectives and also that they would help move the ball further along by coming up with a business plan, which was really the aim of the course that this professor taught. So that is the concept. So in its first iteration, and we just had one, we presented three real world inventions and ideas for their consideration uh, for that cohort of students. Of course, we needed buy-in also from our PIs as they too would need to have spent the time interacting with these students to explain the science, the problem, their rationale as to why their particular approach was better. So the bottom line was three ideas were presented. Two were taken up by these students. And one of them is likely going to be a startup very, very soon. And uh, this is really interesting because the other one, because we were now also leveraging the MBA students and their connections, uh, helped further the technology in a completely different direction that we would not have envisaged. And this may actually lead to another license. So this is a lot of work. Uh, several late evenings, the two of us in the office attended the entire course. Uh, we had to be on hand to answer the questions, et cetera. But 
it was a good positive experience for everybody. And I'm hopeful that we will continue interacting with the business school on these lines. So this is kind of a cool thing that we did, uh, which we hope to continue and, and yield uh, good, good, good things for us. I think that's remarkably creative and really a great example of how you can be short-staffed but come up with some really unique ideas to kind kind of move your goals forward. So congratulations on that front. Thank you. Well, switching gears a little bit, let's talk a little bit about um, managing innovations. So Karthik, in your opinion, what's most important in managing innovations to have the greatest opportunity for success? So I keep going back to the same word relationships, but let me throw in a couple other words there. It's also communication and trust. So so there are two facets to a relationship. On the one hand, there is the one between the faculty and us, and the faculty need to trust our process and the expertise that we bring to bear. They're really busy and they don't want to waste their time. So they need to see that we bring value and we need to show to them that we bring value. So the flip side is with our industry partners. They too want to work with professionals who know and understand deal structure, business rhythms. So eventually nature has the final say whether something works or not. But I guess what I'm trying to say is if the process is transparent and easy, if the relationship is good, the responses, if they're timely, and all of those are actually in our hands, then uh, the presumption is that both these parties on the, the, the community or the business side, as well as the faculty, will want to continue working with us on subsequent projects as well, irrespective of the current project failing or succeeding. So on that note, I, I guess I, I really shout out to the very smart and talented uh, people that, that are there in the office, who, of course, are smart and talented, but also personable and enthusiastic and, and they're kind of innately tuned to this mode of operation. They just want to do the right thing. And, and I think all of that goes to how we hope to be successful in, in managing inventions uh, in, in a good way. That's fantastic. Congratulations. That's really, it sounds like you have a really great team. Oh, we do. So let's switch gears yet again and talk about corporate partners and the role they play in tech transfer at UAB. Can you give us some examples of the relationships with corporate partners there at the university? So let me answer that question this way. Uh, I think it should be obvious to anybody who's been listening to this podcast and the introduction that you might have given is that UAB is a powerhouse of medicine in this geographic region. And uh, in that, because of that, it attracts all the major pharma companies who certainly want to conduct their clinical trials here. So what I'm looking forward to doing is to initiate a comprehensive approach in that partnership with the folk that have been tasked uh, in our institution to engage with our corporate partners to get them to engage even earlier in the research and development cycle and leverage our research talent in addition to our clinical strengths. I would hope that this would catalyze more sponsored research and create relationships and partnerships that generate new intellectual property so we can come into the picture. And and that's a strategy that I'm going to deploy sometime early this year. So Karthik, switching gears, reflecting on past licensed transactions and our partnerships, what might you have done differently if you knew then what you know now? So Lisa, I've been in this business for about 15, 16 years and I guess that's long enough to know not to second guess 
why deals were done in a particular way a long time ago. Obviously, I wouldn't be able to know what the various pulls and pushes were uh, acting on the licensing staff at that time. So it's kind of hard to say. However, I would state strongly that it is a lot more common and easy and possible to benchmark deals with our peers in any industry sector. And, and we know that most deals are typically within a particular range for that particular sector. And we know what those ranges are. And obviously, organizations like Autumn provide some insight. And more importantly, they provide the medium and the forum to engage with our peers. But within those constraints, within those ranges that are generally perceived as acceptable, there is obviously opportunity to be creative and structure our deals in a way that accounts for the ebbs and flows, the rhythms and the timelines of the scientific progress, as well as the translational process, uh, to be creative and, and therefore make uh, smart decisions about the way we structure our deals. And I guess that's not really fully answering a question, but I don't want to second guess why certain deals were done some way. So we just try to do the best deal we can. Yep. Fair enough. Fair enough. That's all we can ever do, really. Right. So let's talk about some of your office's big success stories. Can you provide some of those to us, whether it's successful technologies, startups or other things? Yeah, it's always so much fun to talk about success stories, right? So there are many, many success stories, but I think it's good to highlight two that that I'm kind of familiar with. So the first of these that I want to talk about is kind of interesting at many different levels. So it was developed a while ago by one of our nephrologists, Dr. Ashita Tolwani, and it very recently got emergency use authorization by the FDA. So it's a simple invention. It is a citrate buffer formulation used in what's called continuous renal replacement therapy. So many countries around the world uh, and their equivalents of FDA, I guess, have already approved this technology. And this is being brought to the market by Baxter. So while the FDA was still looking at approving this, uh, the acceleration to give emergency use authorization, I guess, was because of COVID. I think it was Mount Sinai um, early on that identified that there were significant clotting issues when, when patients were afflicted with COVID. So what the citrate buffer does is it helps reduce or eliminate that issue, which eventually le led to the uh, emergency use authorization. So as I stated, this is a story that is interesting at multiple levels. So while obviously this invention is good and it brings UAB revenue, the lead inventor has generously used the money that flows through to her from our patent policy to create a foundation. And what this does, what this foundation does, is it puts money back into the research enterprise to fund translational research in kidney disease. And, and lastly, and this is kind of foreshadowing a question that you have asked other people in your podcast, is about women scientists. And I just wanted to take this opportunity to highlight that not just Dr. Tolwani, but two of her co-inventors, so all three inventors associated with this particular invention, are women scientists and staff. That's awesome. That's really fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, and, and th there's there's one more story. So the, the second story that, that I wanted to kind of talk about was another recent approval by the FDA. And 
This is essentially a platform technology that facilitates nasal absorption of drug substances. So the first drug to use this method was brought to the market by a company called Neurelis. And there are many drugs in the pipeline, in the clinical pipeline, that are kind of using this methodology or approach to deliver drugs. We hope that this is another platform type win that is exploited to bring not just revenue, but more importantly, I guess, widespread relief to the patient suffering from a variety of ailments. Well, those are two really fantastic success stories. Congratulations, Karthik and and the university. Um, Along with great success also comes challenges from time to time, too. So in that vein, Karthik, what would you say are your office's two biggest challenges? So there are obviously lots of challenges, and I spoke about one of them. Uh, We certainly need more invention disclosures. I think we are in a good place vis-a-vis managing the inventions that do come to our pipeline or come into our pipeline. I think we have a good process established that's working, uh, but the net of people that work with our office should just be a little bit wider. We kind of need to widen the top of our funnel, I guess. So several of our peer institutions have another arrow in their quiver, which helps them generate more invention disclosures that we are hoping to acquire as well as a tool. So to elaborate, one of the ways to facilitate inventions would be to have a fund that strategically targets research with translational potential that gets them to the point of advancement that it makes it more attractive to potential licensing. So we were fortunate enough to come across some money via an economic development grant. It was not much money really, but what it allowed us to do was set up a process to both solicit and vet technologies that would fit certain criteria. So we funded, I think, about 10 projects on average. It was about $30,000 per project. The response in terms of proposals that came our way and the early signs of the impact that we're already seeing has kind of made us realize that this could be quite transformative. So we anticipated in about six months at least 50% of those projects, maybe more, likely more, would would be ready for a startup play and and get to a more advanced stage, perhaps, to be ready for a direct license. So this is a very important tool for us uh, because we also saw the technologies at a stage that we typically would not have because the stage we saw them, they had not yet crossed the threshold of becoming inventions per se. And what we were able to do was catalyze that change Uh, We saw in many of those cases uh, for these project proposals that came to us, uh, opportunities to partner with local companies uh, because some of them required prototyping. And we also saw some early signs of collaborations between scientists that would not have happened but for this opportunity. So lots of positives, really. And and my boss, Kathy Nugent, is in the process of trying to put together a fund that will allow us to continue to do this. We already have a process that has been established. We know that it works. And so we really believe that this fund will have a strong impact once we can get it together. Well, good luck on that front. Oh, thank you. So we touched on women vendors a little bit just a few minutes ago, and I want to come back to that, Karthik. Um, Does your office have any programs to help encourage and insist women inventors and entrepreneurs? And if so, would you mind sharing those with us? So the... Short answer for now is no, but I do want to make the point that after I joined UAB, one of the earliest things that we set out to do 
was to migrate to a new database. I mean, this in the best of times is already a challenge. Uh, and it obviously is more so with COVID. But in any case, what we have done is to utilize this opportunity to capture the data so that we have a baseline and we know where we are vis-a-vis -vis women inventors and entrepreneurs. So once we have that baseline established, we ought to be able to come up with a plan to address this issue. And, and certainly there is this is an issue that is front and center and, and we are aware and cognizant that we need to do this. And, and once we have that baseline, we will come up with a plan to encourage and incent women inventors and entrepreneurs to do their thing. Let's talk a little bit about organizations. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what organizations like Autumn, LES, that you and your team are involved in and what value you think they add? So we are certainly involved with Autumn and with Bio, especially Bio Alabama. And I recently got to be part of the board of Bio Alabama. And, and let's switch back to Autumn. And I think Autumn provides a forum to interact with our peers. And it also provides an opportunity to hear the various different approaches to tackle for what I know are fairly similar problems and challenges that we all face. Unfortunately, Autumn was canceled last year, at least the, the kind of live version of it. And I really hope that in the not too distant future, we'll get, get back to that because those interactions and connections that one makes really are very valuable. So I certainly am a huge proponent of that. Yeah, I'm hoping 2022 will be the year that we'll all be able to get back together. It's not going to happen this year, but yeah, those are great. Can't come soon enough. Yeah, can't come <laughs> soon enough. Those are great meetings. They really are. And yes. they they somehow don't mean the same unless they're in person, I think, in my opinion. Yes, I agree. So let's talk a little bit about credentialing. I'd like to ask my guests about this because this is a becoming a, a very hot topic. Uh, what's your view, Karthik, on credentialing and do you think it makes a difference? So let me approach that question this way. So most invention management professionals typically have advanced degrees. It could either be a science degree or a business degree or a law degree. So all of these degrees, and this is, I think, very important, when coupled with an engaging personality, provide comfort to our faculty that they're talking with a person with a skill set that can assist them with the next steps on their translational journey of their inventions. So I guess coming back to your question, I would say that credentialing like RTTP kind of falls in that bucket. But let me also offer another perspective. So, so for people trying to break into tech transfer, uh, it is becoming exponentially harder to find a job in this, in, in this field because it's it's very tough. The competition is really high. I mean, I, I joke uh, that if I had the qualifications now that I still have, which is all I have is a PhD, and I try to get a job, <laughs> I probably won't get it. So, so credentialing helps showcase your seriousness and commitment to the technology transfer field as a career choice and may help set you apart from other candidates vying for the same position. So I think it's important. Well, Karthik, I generally like to close the podcast by asking my guests if they had any three wishes or if they could have a vision realized for their office, what would that be? Okay, so I'm not going to be greedy, Lisa. I'm just going to use one of them. <laughs> <laughs> so so while UB is recognized as a leader in this geographic region, the field of medicine, I would like to set ourselves up 
to be recognized as a leader in the Southeast, at least, in the field of invention management in about five years. I think that's my five-year goal. So we've taken a lot of steps in setting ourselves up to achieve that goal. So we have staffed up with the best people I would want. We have put new and streamlined processes in place. We are engaged with our faculty. We have the year of leadership. We have the best wishes and strong encouragement and commitment from our community. So I would say all of these put together is uh, certainly setting us on the track to achieving that goal. Well, I think you're well on your way, and I think that's a fantastic vision. So I have no doubt that you and your team will realize that. So best wishes in that sense. Oh, thank you so much, Lisa. I, I really hope we can get there, and I have no doubts we will. I agree. Well, Karthik, I can't thank you enough for all your insights and time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? Uh, the best and simplest way to reach me would be by email, and it's Karthik g at uab.edu. And I'm typically pretty prompt at getting back. So reach me there. Great. Well, thanks so much again, Karthik. It's been really great to have this opportunity to talk to you. Thank you so much, Lisa. It was a pleasure sharing this forum with you. And, and this is becoming such a cool, interesting podcast. Uh, thank you so much for uh, allowing me to be part of this. Oh, it's been my pleasure. It's been great talking to you. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and the line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.